Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. It's beautiful here in Houston, Texas. The weather's above freezing, believe it or not. Matt, how are you? Have you uh, thawed yourself out yet or what? I have. I'm basking in electricity right now. It's pretty fantastic. (laughs) Oh, good old energy. You know, it's just nice that we have it and we should have an abundance of it available at all times, but sometimes we just don't get that lucky. No, sometimes we don't. Makes you appreciate what you have. That's it. That's it. Well, as much as I'd love to talk about energy and ERCOT challenges, let's go on to drilling fluid selection. What do you think? Let's do it. I think it's a really good one just because how many times have you been asked, which is the best fluid? Mm -hmm. And you have to reply, it depends. And people get really upset. So yeah. we'll explain why we're so vague. <laughs> right. I think that's, you know, in, in most higher education classes, the answer to most things is it depends because a lot of times it does. And, you know, especially with oil and gas and drilling wells, there's just so many factors that go into selecting anything, whether that's, whether it's drilling fluids, bits, directional, what kind of logs? I mean, you know, what kind of rig do you need? What kind of pumps do the rigs need? And it's just, it just goes on and on and on and on. So it's just nothing is cookie cutter. And that's kind of why I think, you know, drilling holes in the ground is so exciting. It's just because you can move 10 feet, everything changes. And then everything, you know, the answer is, well, it depends now. But with that said, from a drilling fluids perspective, I would say unconventionals has, has taken some of this away, but you never know if oil keeps going up and, you know, people can economically drill and explore again, this may be a little more relevant to, to what we're talking about, but regardless we always have to, you know, check, you know, what we're doing and, and trust, but verify that the right fluid is being selected for the right job. And so Matt, I think first and foremost, when it comes to drilling fluid selection, the first thing we need to look at is environmental and, and regulatory requirements, because, you know, you may, from a, from a technical perspective, you may have the right you know, fluid for the job, but if it doesn't meet environmental and regulatory well, then you might as well throw it out the window, get back to the drawing board. So, so would you mind elaborating a bit more on, on why that's so important for us? I mean, I think it goes back to immediately you want to know what are, what are the tools in the toolbox. And when you look around at the regulations, sometimes, it, well, it's not allowed here. All right, I don't, I've narrowed my search. But there are definitely circumstances where it may not be as clear. And it can be a bit nuanced. So think about from an environmental perspective. What are, what are your disposal options? So let's say I went with a, you know, far more benign fluid. I might not drill as fast, but I could save a lot of money in disposal because I dispose on location. Maybe that's a factor. Or if no matter what, I have to haul off my cuttings and everything, then does it matter what fluid I use? Does the government say anything? And, you know, we even had conversations, look at, look at Colorado, look at some of these other states where local municipalities are getting involved. And because of that, the regulations aren't well-defined. And so you have to educate, you know, whoever might be encountering these things, you more or less have to educate them on what you think are appropriate regulations or boundaries to follow. So it's, it's a bit confusing. And so, you know, that's, that's one part of what's allowed. And, And another thing that, you know, we were talking about earlier 
if you think about some countries, they might not have regulations that exist exactly. And kind of the classic, if you've worked overseas, Indonesia, I think, I think was the last place I remember this, where offshore past a certain water depth, they had different regulations. And then they had a line at the end that basically just said, if it's not here, follow Louisiana 29B. And so it was like their catch-all was, you know, we haven't come up with regulations for this. So if it's not there, we assume that the people of Louisiana and state waters have come up with something that's good enough for us. So follow that. So just kind of a like, whoa, curveball. But I've seen that in a few countries now where they just cite U.S. legislation because it's a mature, you know, place with active drilling activity. Right. And I would imagine, especially with Louisiana. And again, I'm just purely speculating, making assumptions. But, you know, especially after Macondo, obviously, and especially in the Gulf of Mexico, there's been a lot of, I guess, evolution in environmental and, and regulations and can and can'ts. So I would imagine it's, you know, if it's good enough for Gulf of Mexico, it'll be good enough for us. And and, and while I, I, I can't argue that, you know, it's, if you're in a country that, you know, it isn't really, isn't really held to a high standard, you know, well, if, as long as we cover this, no one will come back to us, hopefully, or, you know, our, our authorities won't come back to us. So, you know, in a weird way, it makes sense, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's it makes a lot of sense though. Right. Like, there are obviously rules that everybody can follow. You don't need to hire your own experts to come up with it. You don't need to, you know, do a bunch of these other things because someone else has already done it. And so unless there's specific environmental risks that are different in the place you're working, why not rely on something that, you know, seems to work, you know, and, and conversely, the question of where a place where the regulations aren't clear, you know, there's an interesting documentary that I recommend folks watch it's called Big Men. I think it's on Netflix or one of the streaming services, but basically the, the sto- it's a story of an operator that had a big discovery in Ghana. They're a smaller outfit and there was like a whole election centered around, should we just take the drilling rights back from this company that spent all the exploration money? Because this, you know, what they discovery is so huge and we want more of it going back to our people and that sort of thing beyond what we initially agreed to, you know, thinking that they were taking all the risk. And so uh, having a conversation with that operator specifically and sitting in their office and them saying, look, we don't, we just know that if we violate any environmental regulations and, or don't do something correctly, and we don't know much about it, like that could be a big problem for us. We could lose our drilling rights through our environmental, you know, compliance concerns. So it was basically like, we know that there are laws written that we can do this, this, and this, but we're not going to do anything. We're going to do zero discharge. Every drop of rain on this rig, everything goes back to town to an approved disposal site, regardless of what the law says. Wow. So I'm sure that got pricey. It probably did. But I, I mean, I, I understand, you know, the, the downside would be losing your access to a brand new huge discovery, right? Yeah. So at least for the time being, it made a lot of sense. And, you know, I think Tolo Oil ultimately bought that and it became a big project, you know, great. There's a good story of nationalization. Lots of people got jobs. It's, but the story of the unknown is, was a part of that environmental. And then, you know, we can always go back to optics, right, Justin? And I, I mean, so we want to be good stewards. Uh, most people are want to do it at lowest cost possible, at least in, in our world. Yeah. But you know, we know certain operators that make specific choices because they believe it's better for the environment and it costs more. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, it depends like how far out you look, what may be more expensive now might be safer and economically down the road might actually be cheaper. Uh, you don't, you don't know what you do today, how can it can impact things down the road and then you end up being held liable for it. So that's getting off into the weeds. And again, I'm no regulatory environmentalist, but you know, a lot of times just get in front of it because you know, it's coming, but, and again, I think it depends on, you know, just everyone conducts business a little differently and everyone's objectives and timelines are different as well. So, but again, at the end of the day for us, it's, it's important to at least understand where we're drilling and what the, the respective environmental regulations are. And, and, and then from there, once we have a good idea, we go on to looking at, okay, well, you know, we've drilled a tons, you know, a ton of well in this area. Maybe we have, maybe we haven't, but then the best thing to do is look at offsets, you know, and, and, you know, for me and looking at areas that I've drilled in, as soon as I get a, 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 you know, whether it's a mud program request or, you know, an engineer saying, Hey, you know, we're thinking about drilling here. The first thing people always ask is, you know, do you have any offsets? Do you have any recaps? And so that's the next best place to look because, uh, you know, history will tell you a lot. And while the, you know, mother nature changes quite a bit, chances are you've drilled there within the last, whether it could be month, year, five, 10 years, but, you know, looking at, what kind of challenges they had and then, okay, what type of drilling fluid was used in this area? Did it work? Did it not? And, and figuring out why Matt, you know, you've drilled all over the world. I mean, how, how important is, is experience when selecting drilling fluids? Cause I would imagine that doesn't just apply here in the U S no, I mean, I, I think it's huge. The experience understanding where the big risks are. And, you know, to your point, anytime I was new in an area or even when I was, uh, uh, you know, providing global services, the first thing I wanted, you know, to know was what are you doing right now? Or if, you know, I loved kind of a guy who, who mentored a few of us along in the industry. He said the two questions you should always ask are number one, why are you drilling this well? And number two, if you could drill this well tomorrow, what drilling fluid would you use? And I think those are great questions for line yourself up with the customer's objectives, line yourself up with their instincts and their comfort level. And a lot of that's going to be driven by their own experience and those offset wells. And certainly, you know, you may bring a different answer to the table with your study of those office sets, but that's why data is so important. Even if it's old, it can be significant. Yeah, no, that's exactly. So with regards to, you know, again, you look at your offsets, you know, look at even the level of comfort, like, are we in a position to be able to offer this, which kind of leads into, you know, availability. Oftentimes, again, unconventionals, pretty much everyone servicing areas has some, you know, a a fair amount of uh, infrastructure in the area. You've got products staged in order to make logistics possible. You know, there's times where, you know, we've drilled wells in Michigan and it's not like we set up shop for, you know, one well every three years in Michigan. So a lot of it comes down to availability. And I mean, fortunately we can pretty much access any region in the, in, in the U S it just takes time and, and planning, but you know, that, that's certainly something to consider Matt, and I mean, you've played a little bit in the, you know, product sourcing and product side of things. How important is actually having a product available, you know, region by region? Can you expand on that? I mean, I think it's a big deal. I mean, one, just products that people know work, even if they're similar. But then I I think, you know, from an availability perspective, it's going to cost more to bring product in and even think what happens if you're the only one person for one well wants to use it? Well, now we got to bring in this product. We don't know how much we're going to get back. We don't know how much is actually going to be used, how much contingency versus being able to draw from the pool of what everybody's already using and mm-hmm. successfully for that matter. 
And so, you know, I've been in remote locations where you get by with whatever you can find. Yeah, there's there's a lot of creativity that that comes with that. But you also learn what what people are used to or what's available. We've had some customers ex- or I've in the past had customers express preference for a specific base oil and it's cheaper to get something else, you know, immediately down the road. And so one thing that you see is that a lot of environmental regulations are sometimes hand in hand, right? Like IO 1618, the Gulf of Mexico, that base oil is what almost everybody uses. Mm -hmm. But guess what? The LC50 requirement is pegged to IO 1618. So why would you choose something different if you know it's your best likelihood for compliance from the get-go? But it's also interesting, like on the base oil side of things that you know, I could probably tell you where most base oils, because I know where they're made, I can tell you which countries use them as their preferred base oils. Right. So even that from a drill, let's say you're going to use an, uh, an oil-based mud or a synthetic-based mud, you probably aren't saying, I want this base oil. It's, look, the only way to get EDC 9511 is in these two refineries. And, you know, if we're in Malaysia, that makes sense. If we're, you know, in some other place where it's, a 10 day sale to get it, maybe pick the one you can get, especially if you're going to go on losses or you have risk of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. No, that's so true. Hey, Justin. Hey, Matt. What's so important that we need to break into a pristine flow line episode to tell our listeners? Well, we need to tell them what we're so excited about. Of course, the 101st episode spectacular. That's right, Matt. We're just a few episodes away from a big milestone and we really want to celebrate because you know, we love to celebrate. So how are we going to do it this time? Well, from now until episode 101, we want to hear from our listeners. We've got a great new website. If you go to the full line page, you can see not only all of our episodes, but you can enter for a giveaway. Ah, the old stress balls again, isn't it? No, Justin, we've actually got some pretty nice things. Think about (laughs) maybe a smoker where you could keep the rig crew happy. Things like that. We'll select about three winners for the giveaway. That's actually a great prize. And I've heard a lot. I mean, you go to a rig and there's a lot of folks out there trying to cook. And I say trying, they are cooking because most of those rig hands and especially mud engineers know how to cook. So something like that would be phenomenal. So all you have to do is go to the aesfluids.com website and click on the flow line button. There you can see all of our great episodes along with our contact form. Click join the giveaway, provide a message telling us how great we are and you're entered. As you know, Justin, I'm pretty big on free stuff. So I think there will be a few people who will be trying to enter this. Well, I know you like free stuff. Every time we try and go for lunch, you tag on with the salesman. So uh, if anyone's like Matt and likes free stuff, now's your chance to get some stuff. So we're excited to celebrate with all the listeners. And hopefully everyone listens to the 101st episode. We hope to see you there. And if you have, we'll see if you won. All right. Back to the episode. What about cost, Matt? Would you say cost is a big contributing factor? And and if so, is it dependent on the type of well, or, I mean, do you think it's just all comes down to cost? Like what's the, what's the, the least effective dose here with the, you know, the most for the cheapest? Well, I I mean, I think you and I know that, you know, there's, there's cost and there's price, right? There's, there's (laughs) the, the price per unit. And then there's the actual cost of ownership. And so, you know, what's cheapest for the area or what's the lowest risk in the big picture of getting the well down is everything, right? I mean, I, I don't know any operator that if if they were absolutely convinced they could do it for cheaper, wouldn't stop and say, well, let's spend a little more money unless they thought they were getting something for it, you know, lower risk, better performance, something. And so, you know, what's cheapest for the area 
You know, how can I drill the fastest? What are the known trouble zones? Should I spend that money on that shale inhibitor just to make sure we, you know, can trip out of this section? And then I think, you know, the risk of loss is going back to offset data. You know, if I expect to lose a bunch, I might want water-based mud. If it's not as big of a concern, I might spend a little more money on oil-based mud and get that, you know, better inhibition. And so, you know, cost of ownership, it's not just the barrels, it's, you know, how many you end up losing and making and, and all that good stuff. So, yeah, I mean, and, and you mentioned another one earlier with respect to, you know, cost with respect to mud weight, you know, oil-based mud versus water-based mud, even what is my weight material? What can I get? How is that going to cost me? If I've got a really high density application, for example, how heavy can I get? Right. Oil-based mud is going to limit you earlier on, right? Mm-hmm. So. No, that's that's true. And I think one thing too to consider is is what the risk profile looks like for operators because you know, if they're drilling in an area that they've they've developed for a long time, I mean it it just makes sense to try and push the limits with how far you can stretch, you know, whether it be a system or how lean you can get. And so, you know, sometimes going cheap is okay if if you can get away with it because you just have just I mean, your drilling practices might be so dialed in that you can kind of, you know, be a little easier on the mud and, and kind of stretch it a little bit. So I think a lot of that comes to, you know, the level of risk they're willing to take to try and get cheap. But a lot of times that can bite, bite you. you know, we, sure. I've seen that. And, you know, but, but sometimes you don't know what your limit is until you get there. I don't think a lot of people are willing to go that far, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's business is about making money. And the lower you you know, the lower you get your, your cost down, the more profit you can make. So it's a balancing act. But again, it's again, think, you know, different areas, unconventional as you can push the limits, but exploratory and, and, you know, like offshore, you always hear like, they're not worried about an extra 20 sacks as anthen gum being mixed offshore. Like when you're, when your spread is whatever million or whatever it is, a 12 or 15 or $20,000 day on mud is probably pretty standard. At least when I was out there, it was so yeah, they would they would rather spend the money and de-risk the the you know situation rather than you know trying to get skinny every single day. So a lot of it again again it depends. But with regards to I think one thing to to note is well profile. You know, obviously most of the wells we're drilling nowadays are, are horizontal wells, so that that plays a huge part. You know, if you're just going to drill a nine thousand foot vertical well, it's going to be different than drilling a nineteen thousand foot horizontal. So well profile, you know, directional and things like that obviously play a factor into to kind of you know process of elimination. If if you know you're going to be going laterally, well, you better have have a good idea of you know how long that lateral is going to be, and you know at what point do you do you kind of limit out? But right now there's you know like we have some good blueprint technology. Maybe we can push the limits a little further, Matt. So I mean, with performance, what else would you consider? When looking at performance, how that affects our, our selection on things. I mean, I think it all it all ties together, right? You know, high temperature well, it, it's you know a bit, a bit ironic because we've talked about a few of these recently where it's you could drill with water-based mud, you could, sure, but you're gonna burn through so much product, conventional product, that it may be cheaper to go with oil-based mud. You know, so you know, well temperature for sure. Once you start adding thermal stabilizers and other things to water-based mud, it can it can get more expensive. You mentioned rig rates, right? So you know, who cares how much the mud costs if my rig is a million dollars a day versus a $20,000 a day land rig, that's, that's different economics. Yeah. And we've tossed around, you know, the, I mean, just the lowest risk in general, 
with respect to, look, we know we've got our, a lot of reactive clays. Let's inhibit it as much as we can. You know, classic, when I worked in Azerbaijan, we had a very short, it was like a 600 foot section below the, below the platform. It was referred to as a soil unit. It wasn't even like technically rock yet, but it was crazy reactive. And so we used the high performance water-based mud with the highest level of inhibition you could possibly get. And it, it barely assured, it was the only thing that the customer had tested between everybody that worked. And so we used it because we couldn't go to oil-based mud yet. These were too shallow. And so we would drill the 600 foot section with this crazy expensive water-based mud, but it was the only thing that solved that problem in a reasonable amount of time. Oh, wow. And so it was one of those where it was like the regulations, the performance, all those kinds of things came together. And, you know, that's where you were. I think about also performance and we've talked about sag and some of these other things. We say, look, you know, a 90 degree well doesn't have a ton of sag risk, but think about an S curved well offshore or a big kickoff where you may not even have a lot of build. You just are heavily, you know, a long section that's deviated. And now you say, okay, well, do I alter my fluid or is it just, you know, water-based muds a little safer? You know, there's, there's other parts of that conversation when you get into performance and, you know, maximizing performance through lowering drilling challenges. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing too, actually kind of going back to cost, I just thought of this is, you know, a lot of it can depend on commodity prices too. If oil's sitting around say 45, 50 bucks, well, there's a lot of people who are going to have a lot of oil-based mud sitting around and for cheap. And so, you know, in an area where you maybe typically depending on how much, you know, oil-based mud costs, you might say, Hey, I'm going to use oil-based mud for everything. Cause it's so cheap. Then all of a sudden oil goes up to 70 and 80 bucks a barrel. Well, then maybe water-based mud with a little lubricant in there makes a little more sense economically. So a lot of it ties into to commodity prices, believe it or not. And it's, a, and that's, you know, there's, there's more complexity to it, obviously, but you know, I, I know as, as, as oil price goes down, so does the price of oil-based mud. So, you know, that, that's something that kind of plays into it as well. Matt, how, how would you say operationally speaking, how, how that plays into it? I mean, we, we do some funky things. I say we do operators do some funky things, whether that's through data acquisition, sort of science projects, if you will, you know, that, that really plays a, a part on, on what we do and how we formulate certain fluids, doesn't it? Certainly. I mean, I, you know, I think we've, we've had a pretty interesting discussion on, on logging fluids and why you would change mud properties to accommodate logging. And so that may be a driving force in your drilling fluid selection, water-based or oil-based or chlorides or Bayrite even versus calcium carbonate as a weighting material. I mean, I know we've talked about coring fluids. It's saying if, if you have coring operations planned, that may alter your fluid selection. You know, and, and I think we've talked a lot about the unknown, but exploration work in general, it's interesting because we typically describe oil-based mud as kind of the safer, lowest risk, you know, you name it, kind of makes things easy. But I would say 95% of the exploration I've been involved in we drilled with uh, a KCL glycol system and it was environmentally friendly enough that, you know, there weren't, the disposal constraints weren't there in almost any part of the world. I was, you could discharge it off, you know, offshore, or what have you. It was inhibitive. It offered a little bit of lubricity. It's an exploration well. So in all likelihood, if it's, you know, conventional, you're probably drilling vertical anyways, you're not, you're not doing a bunch of directional work. So there were a lot of really attractive reasons for KCL glycol to be the system of choice for exploration work. 
just because it sort of ticks a lot of boxes without running up costs too high or adding too much un, you know uncertainty. Interesting. And so that like that was always that was a very standard thing, but exploration work, of course, you know, tying back to, you know, you have your expected pore pressure, but a lot of times you may have a regulation where you have to be able to weight up by two pounds per gallon. And if you're at 18 pounds per gallon, I don't know what that's going to look like with oil-based mud. Yeah. You know, it may be, it may be that you get some hematite out there and you say like, I'll, I'll deal with it when I get there. <laughs> it very well could be that you're going to have to have some really, really heavy water-based mud that looks like toothpaste. No kidding. And just curiosity for a KCL glycol system like that. Do you recall what the limitations are with temperature? Like, are they pretty resistant to temperature? I mean, fair, like I would say most of your run of the mill stuff, it was fine. Right. So we're talking up to 225, 250. I got you. But like all water-based muds, you know, you can, you can just start swapping out additives and I could still tell you I was running a KCL glycol system that was much, much hotter with synthetic materials in it. It's, you know, as you get hotter, you're probably less reactive. Some of those other challenges go away. Other challenges you. arrive. So makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. So uh, Matt, I mean, other than that, I, I think we've hit the high points. And again, there's obviously more conversations that are had in offices. Well, maybe not now on Zoom between, you know, mud companies and operators. But th- those are sort of the the big rocks that, you know, me or, I mean, us as a, as a mud company and even myself as an account manager looking at, you know, if a, an operator hits, hits me up and is looking for a mud program, you know, those are sort of the bigger things. And is there anything else that kind of comes to mind, Matt, or any other considerations that, you know, some of the folks can take away from this? I mean, to me, the big message is we listed a bunch of stuff and granted, you know, if anybody's listening out there and thinks of others or has some good stories about how drilling fluid selection was a little off the wall for them, they're always sort of fascinating because they're factors you don't think about day to day. But I think, you know, one part of the takeaway is it's complicated. There's never one straightforward answer to which mud to use. <laughs> yeah. There's probably a good answer if there's a lot of experience, there's a good place to get started. And then I think the other part of it is when we consider all of the dimensions to this, and we, we scratch the surface on a number of them, this is where I get all bent out of shape when somebody says they have a drilling fluid that solves all of life's problems, because it's way more complicated than that. I thought we did have one. Oh, uh, well, we're working on it. Lab busy. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, it, yeah. it, if, if, we, if someone does come out with the end all be all, we'd be happy to look at it. But uh you know, until that point, we're going to go through these, these uh, boxes and, and check them off. And, and really just, you know, the more planning you can do and the more communication that's had between operator and, and service company, that's what it's all about. And, and with that said, Matt, I don't have much else. And with the interest of time, I know you've got plenty of things going on. What do you say? Should we let everyone get back to work? Yeah, no, it's always, it's always good to kick around these things. And I think it's kind of funny. Like, I don't know if we really covered this before and it's, Probably one of the first questions somebody would want to know about drilling fluid. So I'm glad we got to it. Yeah, exactly. Well, with that said, everyone out there, please, if you could leave a review, subscribe, share it with anyone who's interested in drilling. You know, the more conversations and awareness we have around this topic is, is great. And so with that said, everyone be safe and keep drilling, everybody. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. 
Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.